1: Hey, Cynical Listeners. I have a little clarification about an earlier show that I've tacked on to the end of this show, so listen to the end for that if you're interested, and enjoy. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for SubChina access and you get all that and much more with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China. From the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism to China's ongoing extralegal internment of hundreds of thousands or, by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region, we're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. What do we know about how Chinese people feel toward their political leaders? What can we say about popular attitudes toward individual political figures like Xi Jinping or Wang Qishan, toward the party itself, toward local and provincial officials versus the central government, toward specific policies or toward China's foreign relations? Obviously, without the benefit of public opinion polling, except some, you know, highly circumscribed and, in most cases, officially sanctioned polls, coming to any kind of rock-solid conclusions about any of this is really difficult. Our own sense of things—that's you know, based on our on-the-ground or sometimes online observations—is pretty unreliable too. We suffer pretty badly from from selection bias. We're Unsure, as we're reading through Weibo posts or the comment sections of news pieces, of just who might be one of those paid commenters, one of those infamous members of the so-called 50-cent party or Wu Uh, You read about that. These days, you can't always tell who's a bot either. And on the flip side, we're not sure whether the critical voices that we're reading might be maybe overrepresented on the platforms we're on, like Twitter, which requires a VPN for any Chinese people. And they tend to you know, attract dissidents and more strident critics. So even for those of us who are pretty confident that, broadly speaking, there's substantial support for the CCP within China, uh, that Xi Jinping's approval ratings, if you will, are actually pretty high, or would be if you could measure them. Uh, even we are, we're vexed by how imprecise we have to be Getting any kind of a good sense of the size of supports and and how it differs geographically or demographically, how, how it varies by income or educational level or gender or, or any any kind of more granular uh, look at, at favorability on specific sets of issues, it, it's all basically impossible for us, or at least right now it is. So these issues, which have long been argued over by ordinary folks and veteran China watchers alike, are all coming to the fore for various reasons. Do ordinary Chinese secretly support the Hong Kong protesters, as some have suggested, or is harboring that kind of hope just plain delusional? Uh, How much of the ardent patriotism or nationalism or jingoism or whatever you want to call it, how much of that opposition to the Hong Kong protests that we see in Chinese communities of the diaspora from Sydney to Vancouver, how much of that is just a a result of patriotic education or of, of propaganda or of deliberate mobilization? or of censorship. Um, how, how genuine was the feeling that we saw during the military parade on October 1st? How angry were ordinary Chinese people by, by the general manager of the Houston Rockets posting some tweet supporting the Hong Kong protests? All of this touches on really important issues about legitimacy and about um, how to assess legitimacy in an authoritarian state. So joining me from Chicago today to discuss these issues is Neil Thomas, a researcher at Macro Polo, which is the in-house think tank of the Paulson Institute. Neil's been a guest twice, I think, on our sister show, China Econ Talk, and always has very smart things to say. He's written a number of pieces that touch on today's topic, including a very recent one that ran on Market Watch about the topic of popular support for the Chinese government and why American policymakers get it wrong. Neil, welcome to Seneca. Thanks for having me, Kaiser. It's great to be here. Thanks for taking the time to join. Uh, Let's talk first about this brief op-ed that you wrote in Market Watch, uh, and that was published on October 2nd, very timely, right after the the, the parade. Uh, If I had to summarize, basically, you do accept the claims of relatively high level of support for the party, and, and you've argued that the reason for this is basically, you know, what Bill Clinton's campaign said way back then. It's the economy, stupid. But it's not just the big abstract macro numbers, you know, the average annual GDP growth or life expectancy or infant mortality, all of that, but other numbers that kind of touch more lives more directly. Is that a fair characterization of your piece? And what would you say the really salient numbers are that, that bolster regime support?
0: Yeah, so I'd say I accept the claim that the evidence we do have suggests that there is high regime support. In China, because as you mentioned in your intro, there are serious obstacles to doing the type of opinion polling that we're able to do in, in the West, in the United States, in Australia, or uh, where have you, because of censorship, and because of you know, government opposition to uh, doing this type of research. But there is a consistent finding of high regime support across uh, multiple surveys by multiple international organizations that ask you know, multiple versions of, of this same question. Um, whether that be support for the central government, for the Communist Party, for the China's political system. And we see high levels of uh, confidence, trust, and perceptions of responsiveness uh, in these surveys. Um, so one in particular is the, the Pew Global Surveys. Mm-hmm. And they've asked uh, Chinese respondents the level of confidence they have in the Chinese leadership uh, on three occasions before. They're not as recent as we'd probably like, but... For instance, confidence in Hu Jintao was 86% in 2011, uh-huh. dipped a bit to 82% in 2012, um, and the one time they've asked that for Xi Jinping, which was in 2014, it was 92%, uh, which compared to about you know 58 to 61% approval ratings for the U.S. president in those those years. So those are very high numbers, and we have similar findings in the World Values Survey, which was last conducted. In China in 2013, uh, which showed 38% of Chinese had a, a great deal of confidence in the government. Um, 48, 47% had quite a lot of confidence in the government, and only you know single figures had not very much or uh, no confidence at all in the government. Right. Um, so these are enormously high figures um, for any government, let alone a government that we, particularly in the West, don't see as deserving that type of support or legitimacy from its population because of its various policies that repress free speech and uh, human rights. Um, So it's quite a counterintuitive finding. And in terms of things like uh, trust in political institutions, there is some more recent data that comes from Edelman, which is a public relations firm. They have a trust barometer that they release each year. And the most recent one to look at global trust was in 2018, and they recorded that 84% of Chinese respondents trusted their government, which was actually up from 76% in their same survey uh, the year before in 2017. And actually, a significant majority also believed that uh, government in China was the institution most likely to lead to a better future. <laughs> and that was as compared to, to business and media and NGOs. And we have similar findings of a high majorities. Um, believing in uh, the responsiveness of the Chinese government in some Asian barometer surveys. These are from about 10 years ago, but 78% of Chinese uh, then agreed the government would generally respond to what people needed. Um, So these are consistent findings across uh, multiple surveys done by international organizations who are at the uh, cutting edge of uh, public opinion research. And the findings are Fairly uh, surprising, and that is, yeah,
1: there is a high level of regime support within China. Surprising, certainly, from the perspective of a lot of the Westerners, anyway. Uh, what what about the critique of this? You, you'll you'll often hear this all the time. Well, of course, you know uh, they'd be lined up and shot were they to, to answer otherwise. I mean, of course, that's that's a ridiculous exaggeration, but you know it, it makes the point that. That there is coercion, that uh, there there is a, maybe a price to pay for for expressing dissenting opinions. Uh, do you do you take any of these results with a grain of salt, or or do you discount them? Do you sort of mentally knock off a few points, uh, accounting for this? Uh, absolutely. Uh, well, actually, there's been um, some research by
0: public opinion scholars, particularly um, a scholar by the name of uh, Wen Fang Tang, who's uh, working in Hong Kong now. Used to be a professor in Iowa, who's done what's called list experiments, uh-huh. which are a way of uh, testing for hidden biases in survey respondents. Uh, they've been particularly used actually to detect the, uh, the latent racial anxiety of white voters about Barack Obama in the US. Mm. Um, so he applied these experiments in China and him and uh, a couple of colleagues found that about 8 to 10% of people were disguising their unhappiness uh, with Beijing. Okay. So if we take that finding um, and knock off 8 to 10% of the figures that I shared earlier, we still have very high levels of regime support, at least as expressed uh, in these surveys. But, I mean, you're totally right that we need to you know, be careful with interpreting this data. Sure, sure. Um, and it's for certain that these are you know, reflecting the opinions of, you know, probably the majority Han population within China and almost certainly don't represent um, you know the majority of people within minority communities like uh, Uyghurs and Tibetans. That's right. That's the, other, um,
1: the other criticism you, you know, routinely hear is that uh, they're not polling people who are on the margins of Chinese society.
0: When you do test some of the previous results, say uh, the World Values Survey, you can quite easily triangulate that with um, data on gender, data on earnings, data on education level, and the uh, responses to that question of how much confidence you have in your government is pretty consistent across those groups. Interesting. But we do have to remember that there are a lot of groups that uh, do not experience the Chinese government the same way as those who are perhaps uh, benefiting uh, from its economic growth without having to uh, suffer any
1: of the consequences. As I suggested, this all touches on the issue of, of, of legitimacy, and um there are a lot of people who I think especially here in the United States, who believe that elections are really the sine qua non of political legitimacy um, and there 's something about this idea of performance legitimacy that really sticks in the craw of many Americans, so leaving aside the question of whether by this measure you know of, of requiring uh, political democracy to have anything like legitimacy, leaving aside the question of whether that would leave any legitimate states on the planet between you know the time of Pericles in the late 18th century, um, how do we assess for the authoritarian states? How do we measure, how do we establish uh, that a state does possess what you've, and all, what I think everyone's taken to calling performance legitimacy? I mean, is it just the absence of large-scale, you know, re- rebellion or efforts to overthrow the state? And, and, and can we speak of performance legitimacy at, at sort of subnational levels, like, you know, as we were saying in, in Xinjiang, for example. That's a very deep philosophical question, and uh,
0: many a uh, treatises has been written about political legitimacy. Um, but I think, um, barring the impossibility of a, uh, one good answer to that question, um, I think it really just depends on, yes, on who you are, because different people are going to have different uh, definitions of legitimacy. I mean, we in the West, you know, do see you know, elections, do see rights, do see freedoms as a key marker of legitimacy. But I think the uh, data that we've just been discussing on, you know, regime support in China do suggest that, you know, there are a lot of Chinese, and this would probably be true in other countries too, who see, you know, that performance legitimacy of economic growth as being at least sufficient to be satisfied with the performance of their government. Um, And one of the ways I looked at this in in the Market Watch piece that you raised earlier was kind of drilling down on some of those subsets of of the headline figures because we all know that China's economy has grown at almost 10% annually over the last four decades. Real GDP per capita has increased uh, many, many fold. Life expectancy, public health, uh, education have all improved a lot but um, there's some data on uh, just the, the amount of consumer durables in Chinese households that the National Bureau of Statistics published uh, for, for a few decades. And I think these data really help us understand the kind of tangible improvements in living standards that many people in China have seen over the last few decades, and which I would infer are you know good reasons for people to be generally satisfied with what's going on. Because, I mean, you look at, say, just air conditioners, for instance. Uh, in 1990, which was you know just within my lifetime, uh, out of every 100 urban households in China, 0.3 had an air conditioner. Wow. And that's a pretty uncomfortable place to be in. Oh, yeah. Uh, having lived through a few Chinese summers. Oh, boy. Uh, but in 2012, the last year that they published this data, it was 126.8 air conditioners per 100 households. Wow. And that's, yeah, it's an enormous improvement in 22 years. And there's a similar kind of pattern for like heated showers, colour TVs, refrigerators, washing machines. And whilst these might not be sufficient for us in terms of generating legitimacy, these are at least uh, go some way to explaining why a lot of Chinese who have benefited from China's economic rise and quite phenomenal economic achievements... Uh, would be quite satisfied with the regime and would generally be approving of its performance, at least as it relates to uh, their daily lives.
1: Well, I know on a hot summer day in China, air conditioning alone would take me a lot of the distance toward regime support. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) uh, I know it would take my children all the way there and beyond. I think they'd be willing to lay down lives for... Uh, anyway, you, you flicked just now uh, at this the sort of chasm that separates American political culture from from Chinese. Um, China Twitter might know the name Matthew Stinson. He's an English teacher in Tianjin. Uh, we were chatting one night, and he he summed up things really nicely. He characterized the, you know the American perspective as, "Why don't you Chinese hate your government as much as I think you should?" Which I thought was a pretty clever way of putting it. Um, and a big part of it, I think, is, is this American belief that, I mean, I Benjamin Franklin once said something like, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety, uh, which is, you know, a clever turn of phrase, but I, I, I don't know whether any Chinese person in their right mind wouldn't make such a trade just based on uh, the historical experience. I mean, that's still in the living memory of so many of them. Now, I, I ended up writing this 8000 word Quora answer, basically trying to answer this, this question. But I'm sure you have maybe a, a, an easier answer as to why it is that Chinese do not hate their government as much as Americans might think they should based on things that we were talking about, on rampant human rights violations, on the lack of political freedoms, on the lack of democracy, on a uh, lack of a free uh, press. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So I think the um, like the raw data we've been discussing on Chinese regime support and increases in standards of living are pretty widely accepted within the scholarly community. Yeah. But um, you're right that the big question is, I mean, why is this recorded support so high? And on this point, there's... A lot of different explanations that have found some support within the the academic and the the journalistic literature, and probably the main ones are economic growth, which we've been talking about, and the performance legitimacy of improving people's lives. I'd also add that um, the uh, the questions that get asked of Chinese about whether their children today will be better off financially than their parents consistently record extremely high answers, um, even up to about 2016, so fairly recently you have anywhere from you know, 82% to 88% of Chinese um, thinking that that will be the case between 2013
1: and 2016. And until recently, they were very empirically grounded. I mean, there was no reason not to believe that, right? You saw the trend lines pretty obviously.
0: Yeah, and compare that to the US, and these are much more comparable questions, I'd say, than the, the regime support ones. Sure. You know, about 33 to 37% over the last five years in the US have agreed with that statement that children today... We're better off financially than their parents, so we see a lot more optimism based on uh, the track record of the Chinese government's performance. And I'd say it would take quite a lot to budge that into, uh, you know, negative territory or under 50% compared to uh, to the U.S.
1: That optimism isn't just economically founded, right? I mean, there. Look. We, we must believe that information controls that uh, propaganda, the indoctrination that students get about the century of humiliation and, you know, the CCP's historic role in fighting Japan, which is, you know, routinely exaggerated. But in other words, you know, patriotic education, it must play no small part in, in these levels, in these numbers. Absolutely. And I was uh, very careful to make a
0: strong point of that in that Market Watch piece that uh, we've been discussing and there's absolutely no doubt that China's you know, very expansive system of, of propaganda, patriotic education, censorship, control, um, play a big part in shaping these views, because that's the environment that people grow up in. It's not determinative by any means. Um, you know, there's a wide diversity of opinion within uh, the Chinese uh, population, whether they're in China, in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, in Macau, in the US, anywhere else overseas. But um, the general kind of default setting that kind of people learn about the world in school um, and through reading the news, it's a closed information ecosystem um, unless you have a VPN to jump the firewall. But actually not that great a proportion of Chinese do. Um, It's a tiny
1: proportion. It's kind of shockingly small.
0: So yeah, we would be very remiss to ignore these, uh, if you like, negative reasons why Chinese support the government. But I guess the point of the piece was that there are also uh, positive reasons.
1: So, yeah, exactly. On, on the 70th anniversary of the founding of the PRC, which was just a little over a week ago, as we record, there was this whole flurry of, of discussion uh, again about what the real attitudes of the Chinese people are. I mean, if you how were to, you know, to strip this away, uh, all of this other stuff, you know, propaganda and media controls, if you were to strip away censorship. And uh, this was, you know, of course, especially resonant because of what's happening in Hong Kong. It's It struck me as... as, as evidence for the state of discourse outside of China about this subject of the CCP's legitimacy that Ian Johnson of the New York Times published an op-ed to make the point that had this been almost any other country's national celebration, it would have been so banal a point that it wouldn't have merited attention, let alone like an a, a op-ed in the New York Times. I mean, the, the claim that much of the support, some of the support from people around him in Tiananmen Square, watching the parade, watching the fireworks, was honest, heartfelt, patriotic emotion. Uh, that's, that's, it really says something interesting about the state of discourse about China that, that we have trouble believing that.
0: And I think a lot of the, the difficulty with bringing in the uh, propaganda and nationalism factors into regime support, and they're obviously very important. I don't mean to deny that. It's, just, it's quite hard to measure. And it's also quite hard to separate what is government- produce nationalism from what is just natural patriotism because there's that, old, right. there's that old george bernard Shaw quote that um this discussion reminded me of so i pulled it up it's that, you know patriotism is the belief your country is superior to all other countries because you were born in it and i think that's right. something that's universal people love their country because that's where they're from that's where their family are that's where they grew up that's where home is so it's very hard to yeah. separate that which i think you'd find in any country from that effect created by the government, there's definitely a real part of it, but splicing those two is is very difficult. But I would note that I mean propaganda has been an increasing focus in the last few years under Xi Jinping. So there is perhaps more of a uh, that coming to the fore in you know, these incredibly enormous parades and in terms of more uh, focused propaganda, better propaganda, more resources being put into propaganda. And, you know, tighter control in the ideological sphere.
1: Right. Uh, well, another thing that you flicked at in in the Market Watch piece was this essay that was written, I think, like 20 years ago now by Jeff Wasserstrom of UC Irvine. Uh, the, the, the title of that essay was Big Bad China and the Good Chinese People. Um, what is problematic to you about this distinction that we so often see people making now between the Chinese Communist Party and the people of China? I mean... I, I get the impulse to do this, I mean, to say, I'm not against China, just against its ruling party, and to push back against the CCP's efforts to, to conflate these two things, which they, they do, they try to conflate these things, um, not just in, in Chinese people's minds, but in everyone's minds. But what what's the problem in your mind uh, with that uh, bifurcation? So I think the problem
0: with that bifurcation, in my mind, is that it's just not completely true. Uh, I do fully subscribe to the notion that you know, American foreign policy should be targeting Beijing rather than Chinese people. I think that's a totally sensible thing to be pursuing in Washington. But I think if you allow that distinction to inform all of your thinking about Beijing and about the resilience of the Chinese government, then you're making a mistake because not every Chinese person you know, dreams of freedom – The same way that Americans do and it's a mistake to kind of impute all of our preferences and our desires onto the Chinese people. There are certainly uh, a large number of Chinese people who do feel those things and uh, they should be supported, we should support them, but there is a diversity of opinion and a lot of Chinese are patriotic and their patriotism is one that is aligned with the the CCP and the PRC uh, and they aren't particularly interested In
1: becoming just like us you said that a lot better than I could have I would have been able to but yeah I I mean I feel exactly the same way Uh, it also just sometimes just strikes me as as positively insincere when it comes from certain people they make this distinction but then in practice I see them slip all the time and they 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 do it themselves they they end up attacking this notional China instead of singling out this this odious political party that they profess to hate Uh, anyway Th- that's, that's, I feel it does reflect I'm, a broader point, though. It's
0: like people really like to think in dualities. I think that's increasingly kind of defining well, the discourse in in America and also in China. I'd add, You know, that America is good and China is evil. The reverse in Beijing. That The Chinese people want our way of life. The Chinese government is doing all it can to destroy our way of life. That, you know, if you write about China, you're either pro-China or you're anti-China. And, you know, it's quite... You know, comfortable and maybe emotionally invigorating to you know navigate the world through these dualistic perspectives, but they're only a kind of vague representation of what's always at least a slightly more complex reality. There are obviously some issues where it's far more clear cut uh, sure. than others, but still, like dualities are rarely um, helpful when it comes to actually making policy that gets results and improves the security of. Of America for
1: Washington or for China in Beijing. That's right. Uh, there was another thing in the piece um, that, that Ian wrote that leapt out at me. And that was when he was describing the people around him who were experiencing that that surprisingly authentic, you know, patriotic emotion. Uh, many of them were, as you said, they were scientists, they were intellectuals, people who had made some contribution to the, to the state in the last 70 years. But it, it was I think we've gotten to the point in our discourse again where we we've come to conflate the word intellectual with the word dissident when it comes to China if you look at who among Chinese intellectuals gets translated into English who, who gets covered uh, who who gets to write op-eds in the New York Times like Ian um it it, it it's not surprising that it skews very much in favor of, of critics and dissidents. If you just look at like the Chinese names who've written New York Times articles, it's, you know, Mung Xue and uh, and Liao Yu and Yu Hua and all these people who are quite, you know, strident critics. And then when you have somebody sort of on the other side, I, I almost suspect they're there to, to look deliberately ridiculous. You have, you know, Zhang Weiwei, who is just... I mean, I, for me, it's just embarrassing to to read. You don't end up having people who I think are more sort of representative of the average kind of uh, Chinese intellectual. But again, that hardly would merit an op-ed. I mean, you're not going to write a story uh, with a headline that says Tsinghua Professor thinks thinks things are basically okay, just need some tweaking on on the on the edges." Uh, that's that's not gonna not gonna do it. But I think intellectuals are so important to our understanding of the dynamic of Chinese politics. I mean, you know, between the the, the pen and the sword, that that's sort of the the piston and and the cam of, of 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 Chinese, you know, of of Chinese politics. And we don't we don't understand one whole part of it. I mean, this is something I think it was Jude Blanchette who once asked me. Who who is a representative intellectual, sort of from that that milk toast middle? Who who is the the David Brooks of China, as he put it? You know that's a that's a tough question. I, I'm I don't think there's, a, there's an easy answer to that, but I, I keep looking for him. Who who's somebody who, who represents a, a kind of the bland establishment? Uh, and how do we how do we go about trying to understand him better?
0: <laughs> I guess it's a question of what the establishment exactly is i think there's plenty of um uh, intellectuals and academics in china who mostly publish fairly supportive things of the the chinese government some who are and some who are very enthusiastic about the chinese system and increasingly so over recent years so someone like huangang um, sure. who has you know been someone who's really driven policy on a lot of issues um not I in think, a good direction. But. And not in a good direction, especially when it comes to you know, ethnic policy, uh, which we're seeing you know, play out with the Uyghurs and the Hui and other groups right now. Right. Um, but I'd say a lot of most uh, intellectuals and academics are, you know, if not just you know, neutral kind of uh, supporters in their background, but are also, you know, quite happy to, to champion many things that they find to be uh, attractive or find to be um, useful for themselves within the the Chinese system and there's a whole like range um, not just in you know, it's kind of like for the establishment ones but there's also the um, liberal ones and also the um, far more conservative far sure, more yeah. uh, hardline ones so I mean there's really like quite a range within that but obviously within the bounds of acceptable expression but you do try and see, see some people trying to push that.
1: My, my point is that they're just not really highlighted ever and we don't we rarely know their names in in the west even people who are fairly serious china watchers uh don't you know they they don't have a ready answer to who is the 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 david brooks of china some sort of pundit who is widely published
0: i would encourage um everyone who's interested there in that question to uh, check out the website reading the china dream i'm not personally involved in it so i'm a neutral bystander but Uh it publishes some excellent translations of uh, contemporary Chinese intellectuals and, you know, their kind of major works. Um, It's one in particular that I was reading just recently that kind of relates to this podcast by um, uh, Wang Xiaoguang, who's an emeritus professor from, I think, the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Um, You know, had kind of been writing for for many decades about this. And it's called Representative and Representational Democracy. And it kind of compares China's, uh, you know, kind of mass line-inspired, Interaction with the people versus the electoral interaction with the people that Western governments have and he ends up concluding that the Chinese system is better and actually allows for more participation um, and uses that as an argument to uh, justify, you know, the Beijing government and its superiority over the West. So there's a lot of essays um, like that and from people like him on the site. And it really is a, a fantastic resource yeah. um, if you want to read these in translation.
1: That that leads really in, quite naturally into what I wanted to ask you about MBLL, the message board for local leaders or, or the liu <laughs> 流言白 um, You had written a, a piece on Macropolo, I think earlier, probably in the spring of this year, about how the CCP is actually quite responsive to public opinion in China and what what the party does to gauge, to monitor, and to to react to that public opinion? Can you talk about that? Because I think this this whole puzzle of, of authoritarian resilience, which you know we've been wrestling with a lot recently. Although I guess we've moved on now to trying to understand the whole democratic backslide. Um, part of that, I think, is is because of this focus on public opinion that the, the party has really kind of taken quite seriously. Talk about that about MBLL, the message board for local leaders. Sure, and this is all part of this idea of what public opinion
0: is and what it means. Right, uh, we associate public opinion with you know popular democratic participation in elections, the opinion polls, of what we use to drive coverage um, in presidential elections and primary elections. But um, I think yeah, the point of this kind of, of piece and these kind of systems is that public opinion is is not necessarily a force for democratic transformation, but it can actually be used by authoritarian governments to solidify uh, their rule and to improve the governance that they can deliver to their people. Because, I mean, turning back to this idea of the mass line, which is kind of that the, the Communist Party uh, goes into the people, it asks them what they want, then it formulates policies, brings them back, tests them out, gets more opinions from the people, goes back and then perfects the policies and then rolls them out to uh, the warm embrace of the, the masses. <laughs> That's the ideal. Obviously, it's completely controlled within the bounds of, of the Communist Party, but it, it does want to get um, input and information from the people because that helps it rule better. And it's much easier to rule a country if you are have a, a citizenry that is uh, accepting or at least acquiescent to what's going on, rather than one that is, you know, in open revolt and rebellion, and so Xi Jinping has been very clear that one of the ways to, you know, follow this mass line approach to governance is through the internet and through uh, monitoring what citizens say on the internet and uh, soliciting opinions from, you know, ordinary citizens about how the government's doing. And it's usually the, the local governments. Right. So he's kind of uh, issued this order to get online um, to local governments because that's where public opinion is and that's where this really valuable information is. Um, because as we all know, the Communist Party doesn't have elections with which to uh, collect you know, opinion on performance that way. So yes, the the MBLL is an online platform run by the People's Daily Online. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also an app. There's also a WeChat program. And it basically just lets Chinese netizens leave public messages for either provincial, city, or county governments. And then these governments can either reply to that message, and that's also public, um, or they can just not respond. Um, But the platform kind of tallies all of these messages and all of these responses. And at least uh, when I was writing the piece, I collected data up to the end of April this year, and since it started in 2006, there'd been something like you know, 1.7 million messages and about 66% of those had received at least a reply. But it doesn't necessarily mean something was done, right. but there was an acknowledgement and there was you know, potential for action from that local government. And because it's all public, there is you know, theoretically more pressure on governments to act. And I mean, perhaps an indication of it becoming more effective is that the number of... Um, Messages left has been increasing dramatically over the last uh, couple of years, and the response rate is now something like 80%, um, which wow. is much higher than the uh, overall average of, of 65%, which, which is from 2006. Right. Takes in data going back to, yeah, 2006. Uh, and so, obviously, like, there's only a certain type of messages you can leave. Like, if you leave a message um, on a sensitive political topic or calling for Xi Jinping to resign, that's definitely going to get deleted. Right. But in terms of issues like, um, you know, wage arrears or like um, outdated neighborhoods that need redoing, you know, forced land seizures, these are all pretty common, some of the most common issues on the the MBLL. Healthcare is another big issue. Yeah, you actually did a Um,
1: word cloud about MBLL messages. Uh, What did that seem to tell you? I I remember seeing things like healthcare and... Chai Chen and stuff like that.
0: So the original uh, Chinese one was actually a courtesy of the People's Daily Online itself. They very handily uh, provided that to all their readers. Oh. And then we translated it uh, into, uh, into English, or most of it anyway. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of the things you see is that most of these complaints are from, you know, uh, they're rural issues or they're issues that are faced by, you know, lower income urbanites. Um, so it's kind of a way for those that aren't, necessarily very enfranchised by other parts of the political system to, you know, voice their grievances and to, you know, connect directly to local governments who, um, many of which have, you know, formal regulations about how to deal with these complaints. And, um, you know, as we've seen from the statistics, many of them do at least respond. And, you know, this has to be taken with a a grain of salt, obviously, but um, the People's Daily claims that uh, over 50% of the users of the MBLL were Quote satisfied with uh, the reply they received. Hmm. So it does seem that something is happening. And there was actually scholarly research that shows that the higher number of uh, messages left uh, for particular localities' uh, leaders did tend to correlate with more attention paid to welfare in government work reports and also um, increased coverage of the 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 bow like the kind of universal basic income for poor Chinese. So... The, the research that's just about just coming out because it's still quite a new initiative does seem to indicate that while it may not be revolutionary and it's certainly not leading to you know any kind of democratic transformation, this platform, the MblL, is effective for the central government in at least having some kind of effect on improving the public service delivery of local governments, which is great for Beijing because right. that um, increases. The legitimacy increases the satisfaction of citizens everywhere with their government. And there's different response rates in different places, but you do kind of tend to find that there's a virtuous cycle between the uh, quantity of responses and the quantity of messages. So it, when it does get started, it does seem to you know, to start
1: working. Interesting. It, it isn't anonymous, right? I'm presumably you have to, you have some identification that you have to, I um, mean, you have to posting your your real name
0: yes you can't see all of the data if you're just a a casual user but if you want to actually log a a message or a complaint um, or a request for information there's always different types of things you can do on the platform you do have to provide your your full name and identification number right um, things like that carmax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you
1: Neil you've also written about the importance of anniversaries to to the Chinese Communist Party and maybe paraphrasing you here uh, how lacking the popular mandate that elections would confer uh, the party plays up its historical role as one of the the, the big cornerstones of its political legitimacy uh, can you expand on this a little bit and talk about 2019 which is just a year that was packed with a lot of these nice round anniversaries
0: yeah so 2019 really is has been a big year obviously the major one was the the seventieth anniversary of the PRC, which was uh, got the big October the first military parade. Sure. But um, yeah, there's there's a whole lot more. The uh, anniversary of Macau coming back to Chinese sovereignty is uh, in on December twentieth. There's the Tiananmen anniversary, obviously of the Urumqi riots, the Falun Gong crackdown, the Belgrade um, bombing. Yep, the, the Belgrade bombing. There's a lot going on. Um,
1: perhaps a little... Of course, May 4th.
0: Yep, May 4th, obviously, a huge one. Um, and yeah, I mean, anniversaries are important, at least in my reading, precisely because the um, the government, the Chinese Communist Party, makes them important. Um, and it goes to this question of legitimacy and the role of, of propaganda as well that we were talking about before. Um, and if you read, you know, the Chinese Constitution... Um, the party constitution history is a big part of um, the official legitimation of the, the regime. Um, you know, that's a century of humiliation narrative whereby China was you know, under the yoke of foreign powers since the first Opium War in the 1840s and suffered from you know, wave after wave of invasions and exploitation. And um, the Chinese Communist Party, in this narrative, um, played the starring role as the, the liberators of China, and finally, you know, bringing China back under Chinese control and removing, you know, foreign influence and removing, you know, foreign uh, control over over Chinese destiny. Right. So that's certainly, you know, there's a also an organic part of that as well. I'd say, and this is what's been picked up as well by a lot of, you know, writers like Ian Johnson too and uh, Li Yuan, right, both writing in, in the Times that, you know, this achievement that Mao did is something that people still can appreciate. Yeah, it uh, resonates with them still. Particularly if you perceive that China isn't getting the kind of respect or the um, opportunities it deserves on the international scene today. Um, So yeah, without this kind of popular mandates from elections, these kind of anniversary celebrations are a reminder to people, a kind of very emotional reminder to people that um, the Communist Party has played uh, in some ways, a positive role in China's history, in terms of you know achieving this independence from foreign powers, even if. That they weren't the only people responsible for it. <laughs> right.
1: This anniversary consciousness strikes me as very much a double-edged sword. I mean, for every one of these great events deserving of commemoration in the the, the party historiography, there's a dark anniversary too, right? I mean, we just rattled off a list of, of some, and some of them were. You know, the Urumqi riots, the, the Falun Gong crackdown in, in 1999. Uh, there were a number in that list uh, that you have at the bottom there of the, the, the one the 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 lists of the nines that were dark anniversaries as you describe them. Talk a little bit about dark anniversaries, um, you know, the contested anniversary dates.
0: Yeah, so dark anniversaries uh, is a term that I borrow from Jeremy Barme at China Heritage, and it refers to significant dates in the history of China. Uh, June 4th, 1989 is the big one mm-hmm. um, that are not at all, marked in the calendar of official celebrations and are, in fact, actively suppressed and people are prevented from celebrating them. So these are kind of focal points for dissent. Um, There's some great work being done on this by by Rory Truex, actually, at Princeton, um, who kind of uh, theorizes that these dates serve as what he calls focal points that help protesters and dissidents in authoritarian countries to overcome the um, the information barriers to collective action because you know it's significant and you know there's going to be other people who think it's significant. So it helps you to act.
1: Right. They, they have tremendous symb- symbolic valence. I think even if you just go to 1989, the students had in their hands a lot of these very valent uh, nice round anniversary dates. They had the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution. They had the 40th anniversary of the founding of the PRC. And, of course, they had the 70th anniversary of the May 4th movement, all of which you know, sort of gave them this uh, revolutionary cred that they were able to deploy pretty u- for pretty effectively. So, yeah, I, I think I'd be really interested in reading Tro- Rory's work on yeah, that.
0: Yeah, and you saw that with uh, a lot of things in 89. There's obviously a huge march on Tiananmen on the anniversary on May 4th. There were also things like a a May 4th journal that was published, uh, a May 4th signs, a square, a manifesto. So a very conscious deployment of this historical anniversary for purposes that did not advance the uh, agenda of the the Communist Party. And so hence, um, there's just been increasing and increasing um, repression of those kind of behaviors in China since then. And I think you really are seeing that the potential at least in my view, of these dark anniversaries to to serve subversive ends, it is really diminishing, um, particularly over the last few years. Fascinating.
1: So let's end this chat by turning to what's happened just in the last few days. Uh, Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey tweeted, and then soon afterward deleted, a, a message calling for supporting freedom for Hong Kong. Everyone knows that now. That set off fury in China among ordinary people. It was obviously augmented by, by bots and, and perhaps by paid commenters. And it triggered responses that have so far included a rather abject apology, at least in the Chinese version of it, from the NBA CCTV decision not to uh, air any more NBA shows this season. Uh, and then there were other things that happened, too. I mean, you had that animated, pretty reliably irreverent show, South Park, which uh, ran an episode called Banned in China, B-A-N-D. A little double entendre because part of it involves uh, a rock band that they form, which is again runs into trouble. Uh, it got the show pulled off the air, off the major online video sites like Yoku. And then Blizzard, which is a major game publisher, banned an e-games athlete for his supposed anti-China statement. So um, how does the Chinese response in these cases fit into your understanding of, of public opinion and regime legitimacy in China?
0: I think it really shows the kind of complex interaction between people and the state in the sense that a lot of the reaction is bottom-up reaction from netizens, but that's also supported by pretty explicit signals from the state that this is supported. So um, comments being made by state media on their social media channels and in articles that clearly signal that this is uh, a line of attack that is approved and something that's not going to get you in trouble. So that feeds back into the, the Chinese um, web, and so more and more people kind of pile on to this nationalism. Right. And if nationalism is high, which it is in China, some researchers think it's the highest in the world, although there's some issues with cross-national comparisons, then it's a, a real a tinderbox. Um, but we do have to bear in mind that the, the Chinese government could stop this if they wanted to, and they're choosing not to. So it's a pretty strong signal that there is support for this um, line of attack from the uh, authorities.
1: We're just in one of those moments of extreme prickliness where there's a high degree of ambient irritability where the littlest thing, the littlest slight or perceived insult, will set off one side or the other. It's very unfortunate. Anyway, Neil Thomas, man, it was it was great to finally have you on the show. Uh, I look forward to having you back. Um, meanwhile, let us move on to Recommendations. But first, I want to remind our listeners that the Cineca podcast is powered by SupChina. If you like what we're doing with Cineca or the other shows in the Cineca network, the very best thing that you can do to show that support is to subscribe to SupChina's daily newsletter. The thing is just chock full of great reads on China, all delivered to your inbox every weekday. Jeremy, Lucas, Jiayun, the whole team, they work their butts off to bring you this amazing product, and it is just Terrific value for money. So sign up, spread the word, and I also want to make sure you are all subscribed to our latest show, Strangers in China. If you haven't heard episode two, that's been my favorite. It's just terrific. You're going to really dig it. Anyway, on to recommendations. Neil, what do you have for us?
0: I'd like to first um, do a little bit of log rolling and say that Macro Polo is currently hiring. We're looking for a research fellow focused on tech and economics in China. Oh, great. So if you're interested in working for us, check out the website macropolo.org, and you'll be able to find the details. Um, But my recommendation is um, an article in the uh, latest China Leadership Monitor Uh um, by a scholar called Ryan Manuel called Twists in the Belt and Road. Full disclosure, he's a former boss of mine, but um, he plows through immense volumes of uh, Chinese policy documents to uh, to piece together how the, the institutions of Chinese governance work. And he has some amazing kind of graphical breakdowns of the authority relationships between different parts of the, the Chinese bureaucracy that are responsible for the Belt and Road. And he uses this to advance uh, a very interesting uh, take that that the BRI is not a, uh, a massive geopolitical master plan for world domination, but is, uh, is rather an enormous economic policy that is kind of rife with uh, internal resistance and bureaucratic conflicts and... Basically, there's a lot more than meets the eye in many of our current discussions on the, the BRN. Oh, great. It's a fantastic read and really kind of uh, delves deeper than most of the other coverage I've seen.
1: Maybe I'll re- reach out. I'll read that paper, reach out, and see if I can get him on the show. That that sounds like a really interesting topic. I trust you will help me make that introduction. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Um, my recommendation is, um, you know, the China History Podcast, one of the, the best, the longest-running podcasts English language podcasts on China. Uh, they're 10 years old, just about. Uh, they have new episodes out now on the warlord period. They, it's really he. It's it's Laszlo Montgomery. It's a one-man show. He's just in fine, fine form on the two that have dropped so far. Uh, he thinks this is going to be the longest series ever, uh, longer than I think it was like the eight episodes that he did on Tong Poetry or on and Enlai, and I think he did 10 on the history of tea. So uh, this is even going to be uh, longer than that. Uh, I am really interested in the Warlord period, having pretty close familial ties with two, yeah, I think just two of the more prominent Warlords. I am pretty completely absorbed in this and uh, cannot wait for the next ones to drop. So, Laszlo, man, if you're listening, get to it. Uh, Anyway, thanks, Neil. That was great, man. I really appreciated that. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. The Sinica Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Sinica Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at subchina news. And make sure to check out all the other podcasts in our network the Tyson Sineca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, new voices, and Top to Top the Middle Earth podcast on the cultural industry in China and of course our brand new family member Strangers in China thanks for listening we'll see you next week take care Hey, again. So a couple of weeks ago on the show, I was talking with Jude Blanchett about Hong Kong and about the impact of propaganda on mainland Chinese attitudes toward the protests. I said something like, this nonsense about the National Endowment for Democracy and foreign black hands. Sure, that clearly comes from propaganda. You know, it's honest to God, fake news. So I got a note from a listener who pushed back on that, uh, and I did a little homework, and I just wanted to clarify that I think I was a bit too blithely dismissive, This is not to say that I believe that the NED, the the National Endowment for Democracy, has directly funded protesters or that they instigated the protests themselves. I still think that the NED is a boogeyman whose role is just routinely inflated and gets blamed for way too many things that it had no hand in at all. I'm also quite certain that the protests would have happened with or without the involvement of the NED. Uh, but maybe I should have acknowledged that the NED does fund pro-democracy organizations in Hong Kong. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Funding social goods or institutions, as one friend of mine, Su Zhang, commented, is not the same as funding the protests themselves. And he, he went on to say, "So did the NED funding contribute, however, insignificantly to the overall social infrastructure and discourse that fed into the protests? Undoubtedly, but so did a hundred other NGOs and even academic organizations that condemned correctly or not rights deprivation and advocated for social political activism. Anyway, NED discloses who they fund, for how much and for what purposes all on their website which is ned.org and you can go there and judge for yourself. They have funded a number of Hong Kong related initiatives uh, but only to the tune of about 1.76 million dollars over the last 5 years so that's not a whole lot of money. Anyway, Thanks a lot.